few years ago, the um, Catholic Cardinal Archbishop of Paris, a guy named Jean-Marie Lustiger, was giving a sermon. He was nearing retirement, and he's since retired. And in this sermon, he tells the story of three boys in this small French village in 1939. They're about 12-year-old boys, and they're outside this local church, and they're, they're giving each other a hard time, as boys do. And then they're, they decide they're going to they're gonna go inside the church, and they're going to confess the worst possible made-up sins that they can think of to the priests. And, uh, but of course, none of them are brave enough to do it until finally one of the boys, a young Jewish boy, goes inside and he walks into the confessional where the priest is sitting and then he, he just begins to list this litany of terrible and obviously made up sins. So the priest on the other side just kind of shakes his head. He brings the boy out of the confessional and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do penance for your sin. He says, I want you to walk across this church and there on the opposite wall, a large crucifix. So a statue of Jesus hanging on the cross was there against the opposite wall. He said, I want you to walk and I want you to stand beneath that crucifix. And I want you to say three times, Jesus, I know you died for me, but I just don't care. So the boy's still thinking he's pretty funny. He walks across the church and he goes and he stands beneath that cross and he says, Jesus, I know you died for me, but I just don't care. He laughs a little bit, looks around to see if any of his buddies are watching this. And he says it a second time. It's a little bit harder to get out that second time. And he starts a third time, says, Jesus, I know you died for me. And when he says those two words for me, he said the boy just falls down to his knees and just begins to weep there beneath the cross. And the priest comes up and puts his hand on the boy's shoulder, and the boy is changed forever that day. So all these years later, the cardinal who's telling this story in his sermon says, I know that story because I'm that boy. You know, the cross is powerful. Even if we don't really know why. I'm just standing beneath that cross saying, Jesus, I know you died for me. There's something, there's something about that. We're doing this series called Confirmation like you saw behind us. And it's, it's basically thinking through how do we confirm what we believe. And a part of that is evidence. And David and Kyle, my buddies, talked about the evidence for the life and death of Jesus. And like they said, there's more evidence for the life and death on a Roman cross of Jesus of Nazareth than there is much of the rest of the stuff you might find in your history books from that time period. Like, that is a well-attested fact. Jews, Christians, Muslims, atheists all agree there was a man, man named Jesus. He was real, and he really died on a cross. Okay. I really don't need to rehearse that evidence for you. Just be reading kind of one ancient manuscript after another. What I want to think through is the other part of confirming your faith, which is how do you explain what you believe? And here's what I want us to think through. Not why did Jesus die, and I'll explain that a little bit in a second. But why did he die on a cross? Why did he die on a cross? You know, the reason for that, the answer to that question isn't really self-evident. So I bet that if you had no exposure to the church, if you had never read the Bible before, and you sat down and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you might be amazed, you might be convicted like that boy was standing beneath the cross by what you read. 
But I doubt you would be able to explain to somebody why that guy is hanging on that cross, other than that he made the wrong people mad. Uh, There's a couple disciples who are walking along three days after the death of Jesus on the cross or on the road to Emmaus, and they are upset because they were believers in this guy, Jesus. And they don't know what to make of what just happened. And suddenly this guy comes and he bumps into them out of nowhere. They don't know who it is. Turns out it's Jesus, but they don't know this at the time. And he asks them what they're talking about. And this is what they say about Jesus. They say he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we'd hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You know, notice what they can't make sense of. It's not that he died. If he had died heroically confronting Rome in battle, that would have been one thing. It's the way he died. It's that this guy who was powerful and prophetic died on a cross as a criminal that they cannot make sense of. You know, the meaning of the cross isn't self-evident to them. Paul says, uh, we preach, you know this story, this line. Paul says, we preached Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. That word stumbling block is literally scandal. The cross is a, a scandal. It is a foolish scandal. So Jews knew, and you know this passage in Deuteronomy 21, that to be hung on a cross or hung on a tree was to be a curse, a scandal. And Gentiles, Romans knew that anybody who's hung on a cross is a criminal, meaning they are a fool. So what the cross is for the church, those following Jesus, what the cross is for them is a foolish scandal. And what they cannot understand, these two guys walking along the road to Emmaus, what they can't understand is when Paul says that the cross is the power of God. That makes much less sense to them than that the cross is a scandal. The early church had to work really hard to keep the cross in the conversation. And that may be hard for us to believe, you know, at a church where we've got a cross hanging behind us. You know, I would wager that 50% of you have a cross hanging around your neck somewhere. Maybe cross tattooed on your body. A cross is part of our story in our lives that it's hard for us to imagine there was ever a time when that was up for debate. But in the early church, the the cross was not guaranteed to remain a part of the conversation. How many of you have heard of Gnostics before? Anybody ever heard that word before? I know y'all have been around church a while. You have heard Gnostics before. Okay. Uh, Gnostics were basically a group within the early church who believed that life was really all about a spiritual knowledge that God could give you, and that it had nothing to do with the physical world. And so a spiritual God who had become a physical man, be tortured physically, and then die a terrible physical death was a problem for them. And so, you know, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, they wrote their own Gospels, and their Gospels largely leave out the death of Jesus. And so, in in the midst of the early church as it's trying to get going, there are people who want the rest of the church to forget about the cross because it's scandalous, it's problematic. But one of the first 
things that we hear from the early church, one of the first uh, passages that, that gives us a hint of what was going on in the early church, we find in Philippians. It's in Philippians 2, and it's a song. And it's a song that Paul quotes in Philippians, which means the song itself is older than the book of Philippians. So it predates the New Testament as you and I have it. So when you're trying to teach a kid who can't read to remember something, how do you teach them? A song. And so what they're doing in these churches before they have a New Testament is they're singing the things about Christ that they want these infant believers to believe. And this is what they sing in Philippians 2. Notice, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death, on a cross. And the word even is the clue there. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The clue is there is this pressure to get rid of that part of the story. But they're unwilling to do that. So the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each in their gospels make the cross, the passion narrative, so the story of Jesus' arrest, his torture, and his crucifixion, each of them make that the climax of their book. You know, they don't ignore that. And then I think about Paul who says, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Philip Rhinelander said it like this. He said, what I'm trying to say better than I can say, he said this. He said, if ever mortal men found a real hero on this earth, those men were the disciples. And they indeed were hero worshipers. And then think of the horrid shock and shame which overwhelmed them at the cross. It was no splendid martyrdom for a great cause, no glorious conquest won at the cost of life. No, the cross was simply an utter overthrow, a speechless failure. It was all sordid and cruel and criminal, a gross injustice, an intolerable defeat of good by evil, of God by devils. And then think how loyalty would have burned to right this wrong, to clear his memory, to save his reputation, to prove that gross outrage had been done him and to magnify the life so that the death might be forgotten. Notice that line, to magnify the life of Jesus so that his death might be forgotten. But nothing of the kind seems to have occurred to the evangelists writing the gospels. They literally glory in the cross. They are clear with an absolute conviction that the best and most wonderful thing he ever did was to die a felon's death between two robbers. It was their hero's greatest heroism that he was executed as a common criminal. I think it's really important for Christians to give some thought, not just to why Jesus died, but why he died on a cross. When we talk about why Jesus died, what we're talking about is atonement. And Chris and I preached a series on that last year called One, W-O-N. And it's about the ways that Jesus by his death wins for us victory over the powers that are enslaving us, how he wins our forgiveness, how he sacrifices himself in our place. Those are all what we typically call atonement. But here's the thing about those. Have you ever considered this? Jesus could have done those things 
forgiven our sins, saved us from the powers, liberated us by dying some other way than on a cross. And so what I want to think with you today about for just a moment is not why did he die, but why did he die on a cross? And I do think it's important to think that through because the cross is our symbol. You know, currently in Maryland, there's this big fight going on in the courts because there's this large 40-foot cement cross in the middle of a median on a busy highway in Maryland. And so some are suing the state because the state oversees the care of this cross that was erected 100 years ago. And so they view it as a, as a violation of the separation of church and state. And so interestingly, there's these two, there's a, two groups, there's supporters and opponents. And the supporters have tried to argue that a cross, well, a cross doesn't necessarily mean religion. And it was an atheist who responded, and I love her response. She said, that's just silly. It's a giant 40-foot cross. She said, there's no other meaning to the cross than Christianity. And she's right. I agree with the atheist. You know, things you didn't expect to hear on Sunday morning. Don't tweet Eric agrees with atheists. Just this one. She's right, absolutely. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said the cross is the test of everything. Crux probat omnia. The cross is the test of everything. Why a cross? As you're thinking through that question, it's really important that you start with this day that we're on today and remembering the triumphal entry. So as Jesus enters Jerusalem, Jerusalem is overseen. It's under the watchful eye of one of the mightiest empires the world's ever known, and that empire is Rome. And Rome, maybe unlike any other empire before or after it, sought to crush anyone who was a threat from inside or out. And the way that Rome did that was by the cross. And you might say, well, I can think of um, other ways to die that might be worse than a cross, although I can't think of many. But what was unique about a cross is the way that a cross combines all of the possible ways you might die on that cross dehydration, suffocation, starvation, exposure. How it combines each of those with humiliation. That's why those on the cross are always naked. The cross is designed primarily to shame the person hanging on it and the people surrounding it. With the Roman cross, death is really an afterthought. What they want more than anything is to shame this guy and everybody associated with him, which is to say that shame is the real weapon of the cross. And shame is a weapon. You know, I've shared that I'm part of a Hope Works class out at the prison facility, and I was teaching a class out there two weeks ago, and I've got a co-teacher. This one was mine. We go back and forth. And I was trying to teach a class about the faithfulness of God, which to me is a fundamental concept when it comes to Christian identity. And so I'm trying to get them to understand what faithfulness means and why faithfulness is so important. And loyalty they understand, but faithfulness, the idea of a covenant, of a relationship with somebody, 
and, and commitment within that covenant relationship that was harder for them to grasp. And so I'm really pushing on this and they're just not getting it. I'm just getting these kind of dull stares back. And I say, well, I mean, you wouldn't want to be, you know, you wouldn't want to be with a, with a woman who was cheating on you all the time. And they were kind of like, eh. And so I kind of fumble through the class and I realize we are not connecting. And I, I just, okay, we're going to wrap up early today. And I walk out with my co-teacher and I'm walking out and I said to him, I said, why didn't that work? He puts his hand on my shoulder and I'll never forget what he said. He said, Eric, you cannot overestimate how much these guys hate themselves. He says, never in their life was anybody faithful to them. In fact, the first thing they learn in their life is that they're not worth that. They're not worth dads that stay around. They're not worth moms that stay sober. They're not worth friends that don't use them. They're not worth teachers that don't overlook them. They're not worth guards that don't mistreat them. He said, if you look inside them, all you will find in there is shame. That's all that's there. And you look at your, their lives and you say, yep, shame works. And when the, I mean, this class is part of hope works, but the opposite is true as well. Shame works too. And shame will keep you right where it wants you. And that's why Rome used crosses. That's why Roman roads were lined with crosses because they wanted everybody who might be a threat, everybody who might be an upstart king like Jesus of Nazareth to know that you should be ashamed of yourself. And if you hate yourself enough, you won't want better for yourself. And you definitely won't be a threat. But shame isn't just something that Rome did and shame isn't just something that you find inside the prisons. I think shame is, is maybe the universal human condition that all of us sitting here in these chairs and this guy standing up here on the stage talking to you have this place deep down inside them wondering are the people here going to find out I'm a phony that I'm not like them that I'm not worth being here and shame's doing something inside of you the thing is that shame isn't just something that others put on us, that shame is also something that rises up within us. And it rises up within us in one part due to our relationship with God. Okay, let me put it like this. So I've, you know, I've got three wonderful little boys and let's say that you were gonna visit one of my boys' classes over here in the day school. And you're just a good volunteer, you're retired, you've got some time on your hands, and so you wanna teach these beautiful little babes something special. And so you're kind of a handyman or a handy woman, and you decide you're gonna teach them how to build a bird feeder. Because kids love birds, they're gonna get a big kick out of that. And so you come in there with some pieces of wood and you start hammering that bird feeder in front of them together, and they're so excited, they can't wait to fill that thing with bird seed and see if some birds might come. And you're getting excited because they're excited, and you're hammering that thing, and you miss, and you hit your thumb. And you say, oh. So what did you fill in that blank with? I, I, I was thinking holy things. I'm not sure about you. Okay, so let's say some four-letter word slips out there in front of those kids. Okay, what are you going to feel in that moment? You're going to feel 
shame. And the reason you're going to feel that is not just because you said something you shouldn't. The reason you're going to feel that way is because of who you said it in front of. Innocent kids. Your sin in the presence of their holiness is going to produce shame inside you. Now compare that to the infinite holiness of God and the much deeper depths of our sin. You see that it's not God who is shaming us. It is that our presence before the holy God produces that shame in our own hearts. And that's always been the story of humanity. You know, from the garden, you have Adam and Eve who eat from the tree they're not supposed to, they sin. And what do they realize, first of all, that they're naked? And how many of you have had that dream where you show up to work or school naked? You know, what that's about is shame. You know, nakedness has been the most shameful thing since the beginning of time. And when they realize their shame due to their sin, they do what? They hide. They try to get away from God. You know, between us and the holy God is this mountain of shame. And so now we understand the cross better because Paul says it like this. We were separated from God. We were, because of that, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, separated, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. He's talking about the cross. So this is where the cross comes into focus. As we think about the life of Jesus, we think of Christ, God, becoming man in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. We call that the incarnation of God. God becomes a man in Jesus Christ. But then I would say the incarnation doesn't stop. You know that as Jesus encounters sin in the lives of those around him, as he encounters sorrow, as he encounters suffering, that God fully lives into what it means to be human. He knows fully what it means to live our lives, like David said earlier. But if he healed somebody, if he forgave somebody, and then he took off up back to heaven, we would say he hadn't finished the job because he had not dealt with the biggest problem inside my heart and my life, and that is my shame. It is my shame that is distancing me from God. You know, if he just kind of winked at my sin, if he made a boo-boo on my arm better, right? If he gave sight to the blind, all those things would be great, but it wouldn't deal with my shame. So when Jesus, when Christ becomes a man, he comes closer to us. He begins to overcome that distance, but it's not till the cross that he comes all the way. Now, there's been no other mechanism of state-sponsored execution in the history of the world that was as capable to absorb the mountain of my shame like a cross. Jesus had to die, but he could die no other way but a cross. Paul says it like this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, curse is everyone hanged on a tree. 
You know, it's those, those words, those two words, not in bold there, after by becoming a curse for us. And it's those two words that capture that young boy as he's standing beneath the cross. He says, Jesus, I know you died for me. That's what unsettles you, right? I mean, I think that's the reason you can't stand before a cross and not feel something going on deep down inside. Because you know, as you look at your own life, your own heart, that inside here is a mountain of shame. And yet here is somebody hanging before you who not only takes your sins on that cross, but that shame. And because he became shame, because he became a curse for you, right? You don't have to be ashamed anymore. You don't have to wonder if you're worthy to be here in this place, because you are. You don't have to worry if you're worthy to be in his presence, because you are. And it's not because of anything you've done, but it's because of the cross. It's not just because he died, it's because of the cross of Jesus Christ that you're worthy to be there before him. And I hope like that boy that you can't stand there before him and not be changed. Let me close us in prayer this morning. God, I know that in this room, there are heaps and heaps of shame. Uh, there are those who have toiled with shame they have carried with them their whole lives. There are those that even this morning said something they shouldn't have and feel terrible for it. God, we know that godly sorrow produces repentance, and I pray that in each of those cases to the degree that it's sorrow and deserving of repentance, lead your people to your cross to lift up their sins to you that they might be forgiven. But to the extent that that shame lingers, God, we know that you have taken care of that shame. You have taken it upon yourself on the cross and it is not for us to bear. May we feel your release this morning. May we walk in your freedom. May we find, like you've promised, that your burden is light. And I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Let's stand and sing together. If you'd like prayers this morning, if you'd like to give your life to Jesus, this one who died for you, come down front and I'll receive you. Let's sing. Let the king of my heart be.